You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, y'all, good morning. Uh, my name is Zach Meredith. I'm on staff here. We're so excited that you're here with us this morning. We get to gather as a church, and we're going to be continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 15. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. And in this section, we're going to see Paul address the question, the doubt that some have, that some still have. What if there was no resurrection? What if Jesus had not been resurrected from the grave? What if he went on the cross, died, and was buried and stayed buried? And spoiler alert, he's going to say that's not the case. Thank goodness, right? He has been raised from the dead. And then he looks at the implications in our lives because of this truth. It's a very encouraging section of scripture. So I'm going to read it for us and then I'll pray and then we'll dive into the text together. So we're 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. It's called Resurrection Essential for, to the Gospel. 15 verse 1. Now I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you which you also received, in which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. So it's on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then, because of that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Here's the good news, verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to dive into your word. Pray that you would speak through me. God, I pray that you would open all of our our, uh, eyes and our hearts and our ears to what you have for us today. I pray that we would leave this building changed people because of the 
death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, thank you so much for that good news for us. In your name I pray, amen. If you've been here the last couple weeks, the last few Sundays, you probably let out a little bit of a sigh of relief when we read that passage. I know I did when they said, hey, we want you to preach this. I was like, oh man, I know what we've been talking about. Then I read this, I was like, oh, this is great. This is awesome news. Because we've been going through some really tough topics the last few weeks. Because in the chapters before 15, we see Paul walk the church in Corinth and us in, in certain ways through many of the issues that were going on in their church that still go on today. Things like warning against adultery, how and why, or idolatry and adultery, I guess, but idolatry, how and why we take the Lord's Supper, he's telling them not to get drunk off the wine or get bloated by eating too much of the Lord's Supper. He talks about head coverings, spiritual gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, what love looks like, who should and shouldn't talk during certain times in a service. And then we get to chapter 15, right? And we read in verse 1. Now, I want to make it clear for you. We've been talking about all these different things. But make no mistake, no ifs, ands, or buts. I want to make it so clear we must not forget. He goes on, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul, kind of talking about all these things, redirects our gaze to the good news of the gospel, right? The core belief that ties all of these other topics we've been looking at together, right? The reason we do what we do as a church, we do what we do as individual Christians, right? The gospel's the lens in which we look through when doing anything in life, or making any decisions how we speak, how we respond to things, what we back up, what we believe in. That's all tied to the gospel. And then he goes on to give us, right, and the original readers, the church in Corinth, a great overview of the definition of the gospel. Verse three, he says, for I passed on to you what was most important and what I also received. Like, hey guys, I've talked to you about a lot of things. I've taught you a lot of things. Out of all of that, this right here, is the most important thing I could ever tell you. That I've also received it. As a Christian, the most important thing that we could tell anybody, and we've received it as well. It's crucial. It's life-changing. And that is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel right here. That is the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, right? It's the foundation of our faith. Pastor Tim Keller said it's not the ABCs of the Christian life. We don't graduate from the gospel, but it's the A to Z. Our hope lies in it. Our joy stems from it, right? Our forgiveness and salvation are a result of it. And I see, you know, we can look at this and see four components of the gospel listed here. Well, three directly, and then we'll see the fourth one in a second, but the components of the gospel here, right? The first, that Christ died for our sins. The second is that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day. And then we'll see the fourth component as we keep on reading, that he appeared to a multitude of people. So Paul, in these first few verses, is saying, hey, all these things that we've been talking about, they're important. They are very important. We should 
talk and think through why we do certain ways, how we glorify God in everything we do, but we must never forget the most important news, right? Never lose sight of the news and the action that radically changes our lives, that makes us a new creation. And right here he's saying that's the gospel. I think we can look at these first two verses to start and specifically see four characteristics of the gospel that kind of help us think through that, how we should respond to that. Four characteristics of the gospel in these first two verses. And the first one, I I think they'll be on the screen. The first one is that the gospel is preached. That the gospel is preached. We see this in verse one. The gospel that I preach to you, right? We, Christians, are the vessels that God uses to share the gospel, right? It's vocally shared. It's told. Growing up, I went to a Christian um, K through eight, um, and I played basketball in middle school down in Fort Myers, and we would travel to uh, other Christian schools and play them, you know, home and away or whatever. And there was one school that we would go to a couple times a year to play uh, in basketball, and I vividly remember, right, from my seat on the bench, I got a lot of bench time, so I got to, you know, take in the sights of the gym. I vividly remember uh, on the other side of the court, on the wall, from basket to basket, massive section of white wall, in big red letters, there was this phrase, and you've probably heard this phrase before, and it said, preach the gospel at all times, and you probably know the end of it, if necessary, use words. Right? Preach the gospel at all times. Amen. And so if necessary, use words. And I get right, the thought process through that, that Christians should live differently because of the gospel's impact in our life and the spiritual fruit that's being produced. But I really do think that that quote misses the most crucial aspect of evangelism that we have, that we talk about it. Right? We share it. It's something that we share with our mouths. God used words to share the gospel with us. The word became flesh, and we're to use words to tell others as well. So the gospel is told, very clear right here. The gospel is told. The second characteristic we see in verse 1 as well is the gospel is received. And by God's grace and through the work of, of Jesus on the cross and God alone in our hearts, he opens our eyes to the gospel. He softens our hearts and we receive this good news. We know through scripture it's not done by work or deeds or anything that we could do or say, but it's, it's God alone that is working to bring us to salvation. The third characteristic is also in verse one. It's a great verse right here. The gospel is where we take our stand. The gospel is where we take as a Christian our stand in faith. It's where we take our stand and and sit in the grace of God that he gives to his children. It's where we take our stand against the current. I, I once heard a pastor say Christians must have concrete in their boots, right, to stand in the current of the world and not be swayed. The gospel is where we stand in the current of the wicked world that tries to pull us off of our faith. 1 Corinthians, I'm going to skip ahead a second, but we'll get there in a couple weeks. But 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, or chapter 15, verse 58, it's the very last verse in this chapter. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, it says, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor 
for the Lord is not in vain. The gospel is where we take our stand as a Christian. And then the fourth characteristic of the gospel we see actually see in verse 2, and that the gospel is how we're being saved. The gospel is how we're being saved. Christians are rescued from the wrath of God because of the gospel, right? Because of Jesus' work on the cross in our place. So Paul goes on to talk about the resurrection in these next few verses and then later on uh, in verses 12 through 22. But we know as Christians, right? We know as Christians that the resurrection of Christ literally happened on this earth. It was a literal historic event. On the earth that we walk today, the gospel happened on the same earth. It's not some figurative language that represents one thing and means something else and you have to you know, turn your Bible this way and then read it upside down then you can make all the clues. No, no, no. The gospel happened. I'm a history guy. Things that happened on this earth. Like, I, like D-Day is a huge event. The, the Alamo, I love the Alamo. FSU went in the natty in, was that, 13, 2013? Thank you for the head nod. Yes, 13. I'm a Tennessee fan. It's been since 98, so we're due for one. But while those things happen on this earth, those hail in comparison to something way greater that happened on this earth, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is going to go on to defend that, right, to defend its authenticity. He's going to use two things, and we're going to read about them. The first one, he's going to use scripture. And the second one, he's going to use the host of witnesses that saw Jesus post-resurrection. Let's keep on reading in verse 4. This is the tail end of him uh, giving us the gospel. He says that he was buried. We've already read this. He was raised on the third day, right here, according to Scripture. Right here, we see Paul use Scripture as a defense for for the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus. And honestly, as Christians who believe, I think this is a word, the infallibility, I'm going to go with it, the infallibility of Scripture, right? that it's without error, that we believe that this is the actual word of God to us free of mistake or lies or contradictions, this should be enough for us, right? If the Bible, if the Holy Scripture says that something happened, it happened, and we can be confident in that. And then he goes on to his second defense of the resurrection in verse five. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. He says, some of them are still alive. You go ask them. He says, but some of them have fallen asleep, have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And then last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Right here, Paul is defending the resurrection by listing the many hundreds of people that physically with their own eyes witnessed the body of the post-resurrected Jesus. And most likely what's happening here in the context of the church in Corinth, and it's not a foreign doubt today, is that many of its members were probably having very serious doubts that the resurrection actually happened. They thought maybe it was more folklore than reality. So that's why Paul concentrates these verses on those who saw the risen, risen Christ to show that there's indisputable evidence based on the body of witnesses. Saying, look how many brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in the faith, saw Jesus and not only saw him, I think this is the the, the biggest point of evidence, but they lived in a way 
in which what they saw was true, right? They didn't just see it and then not live like they believed it. A lot of them were persecuted, died, martyred, because they believed that they saw Jesus. They knew it to be true. Let's keep reading in verse 9. It says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. He says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I love this right here. He says, Whether then it's I or it's they, whoever it is, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Right here in this section, it kind of sticks out a little bit, but what Paul is doing here is he's giving the church, giving us a little bit of a, a background of his miraculous conversion. We can read about it in the book of Acts. We're not going to get into it today, but you can read about Paul before he came to know the Lord. His job was to go to churches, shut them down, was to wrangle up Christians, persecute them, throw them in jail, kill them. That was his job, was to try to destroy the church of God. And then he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus calls him to no longer to destroy, but to build up the church. No longer to kill, but to make disciples. And so right here, he's, and he does this in other New Testament books as well, it's very interesting, he defends himself, right? He defends the authenticity of his apostleship. I mean, think about it. Like if you're sitting there at a small church in a house, and this guy knocks on the door, and you know who he is, and he walks in, and you're like, wait, I know you. You kick him out, bar the doors. He's not coming in here because they knew his past. And Paul is saying right here, he's going, guys, by the grace of God, Jesus has changed my life. And now he's put me in a position of authority. And please listen to what God is saying through me. So he makes kind of that defense, like, listen, like this is very important. And now he turns to the resurrection. And we see from verses 12 through 22, Paul dives into the implications of the resurrection for both our faith and our future salvation in Jesus. Let's look at verse 12. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And I want to pause before we go and define something real quick. What does he mean by resurrection of the dead? Because we're going to see that phrase a lot. Right here, we're talking about Christians, the resurrection of the dead. We're talking about Christians who have died in an earthly sense, but because of their faith in Jesus, there's hope of eternal life after death. And later on in this chapter, Paul is going to discuss what it looks like for our bodily resurrection when Christ returns, and we'll get into that next week. But for now, we need to know that that just means life that we have in Christ post-death on earth. So the next few verses, it's very interesting, I love this, Paul is going to walk through a set of hypothetical statements on what it would look like for the Christian if there had been no resurrection. Let's look at 13. He goes, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. If Christ had not been raised, whenever we talk about Jesus, about the gospel, we're blowing hot air, right? The gospel that we proclaim is in vain. 
It's without merit. Our faith in that gospel is pointless. Verse 15, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. He turns it up a notch right here. He says, if Christ was not raised, not only do we have a faith that is meaningless, that's in nothing, our message, it's not only useless, but we would actually be preaching something which is false and claiming it to be the word of God, thus dragging people down with us into this dumpster fire. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. He turns it up a notch again. And this is like a drop the mic statement right here. He says, if Christ had not been raised, then all of us are still entangled in the sin that keeps us from union with God. We have no hope. We have no way of reconciliation to God. And like the verse says, we will perish eternally in hell. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If Christ has not been risen, then the Christian, our worship, our prayer, our message would be in vain. Our faith would, be, would lack any substance. Our evangelism efforts would do way more harm than good. And we would be pitied by a watching world. Pitied. Not looked down upon. Not argued against. But actually felt bad for. Felt bad for. And we all have that family member or friend who has like really, really bad takes about things in life, whether it's like food or sports. One of our students actually told me that he has a friend at school who will argue till he's blue in the face that ketchup is actually a smoothie. He had me for a second and then I thought about it. I was like, no way, that's ridiculous. I'm not even gonna argue with that. I feel bad for the dude that he would think that. I'm kind of like that guy with my friends when it comes to the NFL. Right, Every fall, I stand on the rooftops around this time and I proclaim the Jags are going to be playoff competitive this fall. We're going to do it. And then we go 2-14 and 14 every year, except for this year. First service, one guy just threw up his like, fist in solidarity in the back. I was like, the few, the proud, the Jags, let's go. My friends don't even argue with me anymore. They feel bad for me. They really do as a Jags fan. They feel bad for me every week. And Paul is saying, we would be like those people that believe in something, that live like something is true that is so absurd that you don't even argue with them. You don't try to convince them. You don't try to debate them. You don't try to change their mind. You just feel bad for them. This is what Paul is saying, what the world would do to Christians if Christ had not been resurrected. They would just feel bad for us. They'd pity us. So here Paul paints like this Worst case scenario for the Christian, right? But thankfully, by the grace and the mercy and the power of God, all of this that we talked about is not true for the Christian. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. But as it is, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also come through a man. Verse 22, for just as in Adam all die, right here he's pointing to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, he's pointing to the fall, right, where sin enters the world through the actions of Adam and Eve. For just as in Adam all die, so also in, in Christ, in Christ, all will be made alive. Look at what Romans 5 says about the relationship between death in Adam and life in Christ. We're going to be skipping around in Romans 5 a little bit. But Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through that sin, in this way death spread to all people. Why? Because all have sinned. Verse 15, But the gift, Jesus, the gift of eternal life, is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespasses the many die, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed through the many? Verse 17, but if the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then verse 18. So then, as through one trespass, sin entering the world, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, Jesus on the cross in our place, there is justification leading to life for those who believe. I read all that to say, just as death entered the world through Adam, justification comes, or meaning justification, right standing before God without guilt, without shame, without blemish, comes from Jesus Christ. And that justification leads to life. So we can ask, well, then who will be made alive if life comes from Jesus Christ? Well, those that are in Jesus, and I think this is very interesting because this contrasts verse 17, which, uh, which we just read earlier, where it says, if Jesus hasn't been risen, if there was no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in Christ, have perished. But because the resurrection is true, and because the resurrection really happened, those that are in Christ are made alive. I mean, what a difference the resurrection makes, Right? No resurrection, death. Resurrection, life. Because of Jesus. We can look at verses 12 through 22, that big section, and conclude that because the resurrection actually happened and was legitimate, we kind of flip it on its end now. Our proclamation and faith in Jesus is true, it's full, it's meaningful. It's significant. The resurrection leads to salvation, right? We're forgiven of our sins. Because the resurrection is true, we're not pitied. We're actually envied in certain ways. Because now we're people that are not chasing after the next greatest thing, not wasting our life on passing things of this world that will never satisfy. But we're actually living a true, right? In a meaningful life. 
a life that is devoted to building up the kingdom of God here on earth. And I've heard it said before, and we almost have this crazy sense of like peace and joy, things that aren't found in the world, but are found in the promises in scripture, are found in Jesus. But I think the most important of all of these that I just listed, the most important way that the resurrection directly affects the believer, and hear this, the most important way it can affect you if you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus, is that Christ's resurrection fulfills our greatest need. It forgives our sins, right? Because we know that God is against us in our sin. And if he had left us in our own sin, in our guilt, we're without hope. There's nothing we can do. Destined for eternity apart from him. Because he loves his people, he sends Jesus to die in our place, resurrects him. The forgiveness that we see from that is the doorway to the many blessings that God gives his children. Look at Romans 4, verse 25. It'll be on the screen. He was delivered up, Jesus, talking about Jesus here, was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification Because we were the trespassers, we were the rebels, Jesus needed to die for us so that we can be forgiven. And he did. That's great news. And when Jesus was on the cross, you can read about this, when he was on the cross and about to die, he said, it is finished. He yelled, it is finished. Our justification, our forgiveness of our sins, it was finished. It was made complete. Right? by the bloodshed of Christ. And because this justification was so complete, it was so final, that God raised his son from the grave. As the verse says, raised for our justification to celebrate the finished work of Jesus by bringing God glory, right? First and foremost, by proving that Jesus is who he said he was, by proving that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. That's why the resurrection is such good news for the believer and such hopeful news for the unbeliever. Right here, we see this right here, that the resurrection of Christ, it's the bedrock for our faith. It's the source that gives us a new life, a new meaning in the family of God a new mission. And like Dean said at Easter Sunday this past year, the empty tomb changes everything. It changes us. It gives us new life in the one who conquered death in our place, and that's Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture today. We pray that this scripture would resonate with us throughout the week, God. Thank you for resurrecting your son that paved the way for our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. God, I pray that we would live in a way that we would really truly believe that the resurrection happened and that we would live a life that brings you glory. God, I pray that we would be bold in our evangelism efforts by telling our friends and family of this very good news we talked about today and how that could change their life, God. God, please keep us safe. Please keep us 
on your great commission to build your kingdom here on earth and to bring you glory in all we do. Amen.